0: Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today, I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by the Chief Intel Officer of the 21st Group, Omer Chowdhury. Omer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Connor. Omer, I suppose, with no shortage of affairs to address in the current state of the football industry, let's forget all that. Let's forget about all of that and draw it back to young Omer. What was his very first football memory? Oh God, uh, first football memory.
1: Um... So I remember watching bits of Euro 96 as as a kid, which will probably either make people feel very young or very old listening to this, uh, I suspect. Um, but I remember I, I was actually, my parents' job um, took our family out to Singapore when I was very young. And I remember getting very much getting into the Premier League whilst out in Singapore and, and really kind of... I think for anyone who's been out to the Far East, or indeed anywhere else in the world where the Premier league is popular, obviously big swathes of Africa as well, where the Premier league is hugely popular. You really get a sense there's there's a huge kind of passion for um, the league there, and you do get swept up in it. And I remember waking up you know, from a relatively young age at odd hours in the morning to watch games, watch Champions League games, and um, uh, and kind of um, yeah, it really kind of embracing the the kind of what was then still relatively new, I, I suppose, the Premier League, but embracing the kind of quality and excitement of it all. Um, so, yeah, I remember watching, you know, it was the height of the Arsenal Man United rivalries and were the, the kind of games then, waking up in the mornings to watch them. So, yeah, a lot of kind of
0: fond memories of of, uh, of late nights and early mornings. For football. And in your early days, as a probably a fan or as, some, <laughs> as someone crass would say, a consumer of the Premier League in Fairway Land. Omer, would you say was the semantics of the game that drew you in in terms of just being your archetype fan? Or obviously, did you notice anything at the time that would draw your mind to what you would do later on in terms of analyzing patterns, detecting patterns of play in terms of statistics?
1: Yeah, I suppose I I was probably always quite interested in, in numbers. You know, I had the little annuals and so on and used to kind of pour through them on a regular basis. I'm big into my cricket as well. So I had wisdom and almanacs, which obviously kind of you know, over a thousand pages of numbers in, in most cases. So um, I, I was yeah very much into the numbers. I, I can't really say why, but um, it was, uh, you know, I think it was a way of kind of understanding the game. I enjoyed looking at things like player ratings and looking yeah, at, um, you know, tables of of who'd Most appearances or most goals, or whatever it was, you know, it was, it was relatively basic in, in the 90s and early noughties. Um so yeah, I, I had an interest in the game beyond, I suppose, just enjoying it as
0: a fan, I was always interested in it as, you know, trying to understand it, I suppose, more, more than anything else. And I suppose it was with that differential lens in mind, Omar, not only as a fan that you've begun to analyze the game and in your formative years, you begun a successful blog at the time. But obviously knowing myself, I mean, writing a blog can be a very much insular experience. But I'm yeah. just very curious as to, obviously, in early days, you know, we'd speak about football Twitter. Now everybody's an armchair data analyst on it. But given at that time, I'm, I'm taking you back 10, 12 years ago, how did you manage to get such a blog to scale? Yeah, good question. I actually had experience um, way
1: before that. Um, so one summer, I didn't have much to do, and I, I kind of was interested, obviously, interested in football. I, I taught myself html and built a website from scratch this would, would have been kind of like 18 years ago or so now um and I, I kind of managed to amongst my friends and then managed to get it kind of amazingly uh, somewhat international getting in people kind of following the website and all i was doing was kind of posting predictions i was running odd games i was kind of you know being a bit of a kid i suppose interested in football um and so that kind of gave me a sense of you know running a blog running a website um uh, over time and then i decided uh, when i was at university to set up a blog so i actually had um an interest in getting into sports media um i was quite frustrated at the time of the quality of analysis and insight that was being provided in the in the mainstream media and i thought well if i write a blog at least at least i can get my views out there uh, whether they're right or wrong um and you're right it was there were there wasn't um you know twitter was probably in terms of really taking off it wasn't that old so there, there were um it was i suppose a, a much smaller audience at the time that a small number of people doing it but eventually you know i was just i realized through the blog that a lot of these myths and and uh, received wisdoms i was tackling um could be tackled through data um and so i was busy sharing the blog to anyone and everyone on on Twitter saying please have a read you know would you mind retweeting if you're interested and so on and I think that that culture has probably changed a little bit on on social media but at the time I was very lucky because people were very happy to share stuff and recommend stuff
0: and um, and as such kind of developed a a bit of a following off the the back of it. And then it wasn't long before you went obviously from writing a successful blog and some would say, you know, <laughs> glamorized armchair philosophy to work in fair decision technology and prozone. What were the key differences, Omer, in respect to writing your own blog, being in charge for your own hours, obviously working for someone else and being informed to provide clubs with such a detailed analysis, but yet concise in four or five minutes?
1: Yeah, so the, I suppose... The, the way my blog worked it was it was kind of my cv and i was, I was quite lucky and, and the way i wrote it you're right it was in kind of a concise manner i didn't want to write reams and reams of text i just kind of i suppose it's a bit like who i am i try and get to the point as, as quickly as possible really um and i was lucky that it was getting picked up at the time by by people who were influential or, or kind of yeah held prominent positions in, in the industry so decision um, technology at the time was uh, sports arm was run by a guy called ian graham who's since gone on to uh, to liverpool and, and kind of lead up the analytics department there um at Prozone i was i was hired by a guy called blake worcester who later went on to found 21st club now 21st group which obviously i'm a part of and i think I, I was lucky they were both kind of hugely supportive and they they i suppose they just really liked the blog which was great for me because I, I didn't have to write a cv i just had to kind of submit a blog and i always say to people yeah the number one thing you can do as you're trying to get into the industry is use uh you know some kind of social media or blog as a means to promote yourself because it's so competitive um and that, the point around kind of keeping it concise like don't <clears throat> don't write uh, or don't you know? Don't don't necessarily be over technical. that like try and communicate in ways that are clear that that can appeal to to a, a wider audience. And um, you can do the technical stuff on the side and, and maybe share it with specific audiences. But try and do it in a way that and
0: um, that talks to people. And uh, I suppose I was, I was lucky enough to do that. And to pull you on one point there, Omer, I know it's something yourself and Daniel Gee address widely on your podcast, which is absolutely fantastic. And I would implore everyone who's listening here to go listen to that also but it's the widely competitive nature to get into the industry. Obviously, there's a shortage of jobs and whatnot. Did you find at the time, obviously, you were immensely frustrated trying to get into the football media side of things regarding the dirt and the quality of the work that was available there. Did you find when you initially took those roles at Decision Technology and Prozone that your hunger had wavered? That, for example, were you very much a goal-oriented person at the time? Or was it just... Your enthusiasm was infectious. You were curious to learn. You just went with the flow. Just curious to ascertain. Yeah. Um, I suppose, yeah,
1: I it's hard to know. I, I do I do kind of recognize just how how lucky I was to kind of land in those in those roles. And Deck tech, tech was only kind of a short period, a short internship, but um, it was yeah there are relatively few roles that there are um i I did just try i i you know very quickly realized it was a means to differentiate myself in a relatively small industry you know sport is as a huge brand as a whole but the revenues actually aren't that big you know the big football clubs are often compared to kind of relatively small supermarket chain for example uh, stores so uh, yeah I, i think um yeah the moment i got into it i kind of had a taste for it like the early my early days um, at deck tech my early days at prozone like everything was interesting it still very much is in my role so there was never any kind of um, getting um, bored with it or thinking
0: that this wasn't the right path for me and then if we're going to fast forward to the present day and your current role within 21st group could you just inform us perhaps about your re- wider remit and the scope of your work there yeah, so probably it probably helps to give a bit of a background to
1: twenty first group as a, as a business first and then and then where I fit into that. So we're a sports intelligence agency, and um, we kind of our big idea is to drive sporting success and unlock commercial value. Uh, and we work in kind of four key areas. So the first one is performance intelligence, which is helping um, in football, it might be helping clubs, it might be helping uh, leagues. Um, in, in, we do a lot of work in, in golf, it might be helping golfers or team Europe provide a cup. Uh, around strategy, around um, decision making through the use of data. Uh, then we have competition optimization, which is helping competition organisers. So again, in football that be leagues, and in golf that might be um, event holders um, around how to best optimize a competition, such that it's appealing, attractive to fans. You know, has sporting merit and so on. So we do a lot of kind of simulation work uh, with leagues. They're trying to forecast what a, a new competition format could look like and how it might drive greater commercial revenues. Uh, then we've got Fan Connection, which is uh, around helping uh, broadcasters, sponsors, um, betting companies around performance content that engages fans and brings them back to their, um, to their screens or their products or whatever it is. Um, and so we do a lot of that work in, in golf especially, but also a fair bit in football too. Uh, and then finally, commercial insight, which is really around helping organizations understand the impact of sporting on their commercial um, uh, commercial output. So often that'll be with investors uh, who are looking to buy football clubs, It might be with, with leagues on kind of um, doing media rights valuations, as an example. And that's all powered by uh, technology and IP that we've built up over the years um, around data science and analytics. And um, so we've got a strong data science team that have been building models and insights over the years, and and all those models, even though those things might seem relatively disparate, it's the same set of models that are powering insights that we give to clubs, that insights that give to investors, insights that are delivered to fans or, or leagues. Uh, and so my role is to kind of sit between the client and, and the data science team and and help communicate the, the value that we're um, delivering to, to the client, help understand the problem in the first place, and then um, help us both translate it into into a language that the client can understand. Um, so I'm, yeah, I suppose I, I kind of sit in that uh, bridging role between, between the two worlds, which is which is quite exciting because you get to work on a kind of real variety of, of projects and meet some really interesting people across uh, a range of, of kind of roles within the industry. Uh, but also I get to kind of see firsthand that the quality of the analysis that's coming out of our, our data science team.
0: And if we're to focus predominantly on the sport and performance side of things, Omer, um, one area which is predominantly very topical at the moment has been that of managerial performance, especially within the Premier League. We look at clubs recently, such as Newcastle, Aston Villa, Norwich, and most notably Manchester United, all appointed managers as of late. Could you perhaps shed some light on the process there in terms of due diligence acquisition? Yeah, so we get involved in quite a few head coach hires. Um, just this season, I think we've been involved
1: in three Premier League head coach hires. Um and look, I, I won't pretend, um, I, you know, I'm very conscious of the fact that the types of hires we're involved in are the more sophisticated end of the process, right? And the clubs that are coming to us in the first place are the ones that are thinking about these things in a much more evolved way than than those that um, perhaps not. Um, but the process we tend to get involved in is, um, with some clubs working on surveillance, so even if the club's manager is in situ and and doing well it's kind of constantly being aware of of who is out there that might be a fit for the club um, in the future so it's using data to do that because obviously particularly at that stage of the process you don't want to be um, too intrusive and you you obviously don't want to be seen out in the marketplace looking at and speaking to coaches so data is a very good way of kind of um, maintaining surveillance on on who's out there Uh, and then in the process of change so firstly it's kind of if it is a if it's a kind of um if it's not a case of a coach being poached it's a case of a, a coach performing poorly it's using the data and understand the extent to which that is true And as we know and anyone who's kind of um into aware of football analytics knows that you know teams constantly get lucky or unlucky all the time and that can often be the case with head coaches so firstly evaluating that and if it is the case that performance has taken a kind of terminal turn for the worst um you know making that change and then being ready for, for that change and and often, uh, from our point of view, we'll be supporting on either pre- um, putting forward candidates who um, perhaps weren't in the clubs on the club's radar or and or evaluating club, um, the candidates on the club's radar. And that could be looking at any number of things um, that it will ultimately depend on a, on a club's priorities. Um, in truth, uh, there are only a relatively few number of things that will predict whether a head coach will be a success in a new club. So it's really a case of doing a due diligence of understanding the fit, trying to minimise the risks that are associated with a head coach coming in rather than necessarily having a silver bullet and saying we need to look at these three metrics and do this perform- do this kind of personality evaluation and hey Presto, we've, we've got the kind of perfect head coach. It's, it's a lot more kind of, um, I suppose, information-led than that. Um, so we'll be looking at things like, the impact coach had at, at his previous club, accounted for things like the resources that he had, the quality of players he had, the quality academy, um, the extent, you know, obviously what, what's their playing style, what kind of um, changes to playing styles they tend to make, uh, what types of squads they used to managing, are they effective at giving young players a chance, do they utilise new recruits, or do they tend to kind of leave them to sit on the bench? So all these different types of things are kind of put into the mix and, and used for clubs to, to evaluate as to, looking head coach and then ultimately it comes down to going okay well these are the coaches that come out well in the data these are kind of big unknown questions that are, that are for them um, and you know this is what you can take to the interview stage into the kind of
0: softer evaluation stage so it's um, the data kind of provides one input in that overall process. Then if we were to change our lens and focus on player recruitment Omar I mean obviously there's a lot more variables to consider but would some of the principles you guys would use in terms of managerial recruitment, would they be the same or would they differ? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the general
1: principle of it being, again, a, a part of the process rather than the process is, is certainly a big one. Um, similarly, kind of um, surveillance and filtering is, is a massive part of it. Um, and and being able to use data in a way that um, you know, one of the things that data enables you to do essentially is scale um, Scale what um you you know uh, the processes that you have with individuals on the ground so scouts are hugely important but there's only so many scouts you can hire there's only so many matches they can watch so trying to understand the things that they do well and then apply that at scale through data is, is probably the the way to think about it um and and so yeah the the type of work that we do with with clubs and leagues as well some leagues have centralized recruitment processes is to is to help them with, with the data to provide scale in the recruitment process, whittle down names to, to much more manageable lists that they can then take into, um, into the kind of, again, software evaluations, much more deeper
0: dive as it relates to, to watching the players. And yet, in spite of all this widespread data availability and your guys' wonderful work in terms of translating that to clubs, Omer, I mean, I can imagine there's, and I can assume, obviously looking at the traditional hierarchy still in most clubs, that there are still inherent biases that clubs and associations and perhaps some of the leagues you even work with are still perhaps unwilling to depart with. Could you perhaps shed some light on those? Yeah, for sure. I mean, f-
1: for me, I- I've been lucky enough to be in the industry 10 years now and, and it's changed enormously in that time, certainly in the UK. And um, I think the UK clubs do tend to be a- ahead of the rest in-, in this respect, but, you know, I, I, I remember being in meetings eight, nine years ago where it was very kind of sceptical and, and cynical about the use of data and, and it actually where, where the data had any place at all um, in a recruitment process, that that's completely changed on its head now. I think every, every club will try and use data um, not not all of them will necessarily use it in what we would call best practice but I think there's an acknowledgement that you need to use it in some way because there are these biases that, that exist in, in recruitment processes and you don't want to you, you want to understand if, if the data is saying one thing why that is the case is that a bias or is that the data kind of being taken out, taken out of context so um yeah I think the 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 industry has come come a long way in, in the last 10 years and it's not it's not always super sophisticated but you know I, we, we always kind of say don't let the good get in the way of the great and i think there's um, there's certainly a lot of good work happening um that's using data in a much
0: more sophisticated way than before And if you look at the environment in which all these coaches and players alike are participating within, it's one in which now there's a jam-packed schedule, seeing certain competitions such as the Champions League, Europa League, there's there's five subs allowed. I mean, early signs, early indicators, but perhaps is there any early signs of at all whatsoever as to the impact this will have on future playing styles within the coming year or next to two, three seasons? In terms of the fixture congestion that's built up, yeah, Yeah, I think
1: um, there's I suppose to go up a level. um, The big question to ask is like, why is this happening? Um, So why are there so many games? And actually, there aren't. um, If you look, there aren't necessarily so many games. You know, the number of games that Liverpool and Man United are playing in the season are are is similar to to what it was. Um, in the 70s as an example what, what has changed as is, is the kind of physical intensity of those matches anyone watching a game from 30 years ago can see it's a completely different game to what it is now it's, it's much more physically intense um, but what we are having now is that there is pressure from UEFA um, so we're seeing the Champions League group stages expanding from 2024 we'll see FIFA pushing for a biennial World Cup extended release periods which um, kind of put more pressure on we're looking to put more games into the calendar expanded club world cup as well um so there is this kind of push towards volume um and at 21st group we often talk about this kind of flywheel and sporting product driving commercial success and historically i think a lot of um governing bodies and associations have thought about volume as a means to grow media rights value um you know there's often a lot of talk about greed when there's there's more games put on and it's it's greed because these um, the rights holders recognise that if you put on more games, more people will watch it. which gives you more opportunities to sell subscriptions and advertising and so on. gives broadcasts broadcast the opportunity to do that. Um, and we feel that that kind of volume has reached a tipping point, not just in football, but actually in most sports. And actually the, the focus of rights holders should really be on the areas of quality. So trying to optimise the quality within their competitions. And that can be through things like recruitment. It can be things like, through things like talent development. It's often neglected at the league level and a competition level. Uh, jeopardy, so developing competition structures that genuinely excite fans, genuinely have uncertainty, because that is the one thing about sport that no other entertainment and um, business has. That is genuine uncertainty, and we don't think that all leagues and, and competitions in sport are maximising that that sense of jeopardy. And connection, fans have to care, and I think you know you've got that's where you get this kind of balance around Club World, um, FIFA F- World Cup being played every two years. Like fans wouldn't we care less about the world cup if it's kind of more um if it becomes less rare if you like so we we think that kind of pulling on those levers is so much more important than pulling on on the volume lever because you're absolutely right that the issue with the the knock-on effect of the volume lever is not just that you're um you're putting the players under strain but that obviously has a knock-on effect to the quality of play that you're watching the ability of um of you need to watch kind of high-intensity, high-quality games week in, week out. Players will get rotated out of, of key games. And who knows what it will do to playing style. You know, I was speaking before about, um, you know, the move to, I think, five subs is now in law as, as the new norm. Um, you know, you can change half your team during a match. What does that mean for for substitutions? Well, it means you can probably tell three players to, or you can probably, yeah, tell three players and want your whole team to kind of push itself even harder. The game becomes more physical, that has, you know, potential knock-on effects as well um, in terms of the kind of aesthetics of, of the sport. And football is not the only sport that has to consider that. I think there's a lot of talk in basketball around, you know, the move from, uh, you know, there's a lot more three-point shooting. A lot of people complain about the aesthetics of the sport compared to what it used to be. Golf is the same. You know, driving has become, um, you know, the be-all and end-all really in golf uh, or certainly a much more important part of the game than it was before. And that's, again, it, impacting the aesthetics of the sport. So I think football should be should be very wary of it, but it should be wary of the root causes of it, which is the kind of this move not to recognise that quality Japanese
0: connection and the key drivers of the sporting value if you if you can't pull that volume lever. I find that entirely fascinating with that discussion, Omar, on a both macro and a micro level, on a micro level as a coach, because what I've noticed obviously top three in the Premier League, the likes of your PSGs, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid's, have Monopoly really on resources in their comparative leagues. And what I find what competitors and challengers are doing in their respective leagues, such as your Borussia Dortmunds, your Atalantas, your Mercedes, they're combating that with an over-physical approach in terms of the output demanded from their players in terms of a heavily rotated squad, which is given trade-offs, I suppose, if you're competing week in, week out in your respective league, be it league 1 and then Europa League on a Thursday night. And then even you look at one other bridge in terms of Red Bull Salzburg and Celtic this season in Europe, compared to their respective group rivals, their physical outputs have been absolutely extreme to say the least. And it all goes back to that big picture. Um, It was Miguel Miguel Delaney a few months ago now on the BBC Euro 5 Leagues pod. And he said, and he probably has the best summary of all this. When he speaks about big business depends on profitability, sustainability. Big football is competition. Competition is volatile. And when you look at all these purported saviours such as FIFA, UEFA, Project Big Picture, Super League, I mean, in your own personal opinion, I suppose, and professional, if you're willing, which and where is football most likely to evolve? Yeah, great question. I think, um,
1: you know, football is obviously... You know, it's 150 years old or whatever kind of organized football and design is a very different thing to what it is today. And there are people who rightly have grievances around where the game has gone to. And I think um the the challenge in some respects is that if if you took say you could start again, you could took English football back to, to what it perhaps should be in many people's eyes, you know, community sport very much kind of focused on on the, the local um, community and, and, and driving you know, a sense of entertainment and connection for, for people there. The trouble with that is that if if other leagues don't follow that model, then English football effectively gets be, left behind and all the best players leave and so on. It may still kind of serve a, serve a purpose, but there's probably a loss of value, not just in terms of commercial value, but also kind of cultural value in, in that as well. Um, and so... You've had this kind of race to commercialise across European football and, and now global football because everyone's recognising that this doesn't just have to be a local thing; like other people around the world are interested in. So it's very difficult to reverse the car um, on that, and uh, it's also very difficult to move to <laughs> the American model, which some would would argue for because you know that at least um, promotes sustainability, which is a massive issue as, as we know within European football. Um, you know, it's it's <clears throat> it's a bit of a it's a closed model and that there's issues with the American model that um, a lot of Europeans were found on, but the one thing it certainly delivers is, is sustainability. Um, the the direct direction for me is, is really, I, you know, I kind of think about this a lot and I, I struggle to see where the kind of optimal outcome is um, because clearly there's a massive issue with competitive balance within um, most of Europe's top leagues. I actually think the Premier League still does very well in this respect and probably why it's remains a kind of leading league um in, in world football, certainly the kind of wealthiest league in world football. Um, but you know, the the kind of the difference between the haves and have nots and the effective killing off of the dream for, for most teams in in um in most domestic leagues I think is, is a really dangerous thing in the in the long term. Um, because if you have fans coming through who don't want to support smaller teams, because then they haven't got the opportunity to win. They support the bigger teams. You're only exacerbating the issue further because they're generating greater revenues. So yeah, it's, you know, you, you can potentially regulate around it, around um, financial distributions, but I think that's um, problematic because how do you, I think getting getting that balance right, I think it's very hard. I think, again, the, the Premier League models work really well here in terms of the, the 1 to 1.8 distribution that they've um, pursued on, in the last 30 years. Um, so I mean in a long-winded way of saying I'm not really sure what the direction is I, it's not it's not, not been hugely positive in, in the last 20 or 30 years or so um, and I think it it surely has to reach a stage where the owners of the biggest clubs recognise the need for competition like being able to somewhat protect their their, their place and with the value of the clubs that they've um, they've generated But but also recognising that that there needs to be competition in, in their leagues otherwise you know we're I don't think football can necessarily be complacent about its position and in 50 years' time will still be
0: the most know, popular entertainment product in, in the world. It's important to know too, Omar, that this is all happening at the moment. And it's the backdrop of a currently uh, fan-led governance review chaired by Tracy Grange, who's calling for an independent regulator to oversee cost controls, the distribution rights system, transfer levies. I mean... Does it sound to you that perhaps the system is a bit broke? Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, there, there are certainly
1: things that, that haven't gone right. I, I think, obviously, Super League was... was um, yeah, they had all sorts of issues with their phase. suppose. Um, yeah, project We Picture, the, the kind of clubs, um, Barry and, and Barry going out of business in particular. Um, so so there, there are clearly issues. Um, I think the... The solutions aren't easy. I think um, see a lot of talk around cost controls, which I which I would agree with in in the EFL. I also think the EFL is like massively undervalued. I think there's um, there's much greater revenues that could be extracted in the EFL that can be kind of clubs can realise and, and help them become more sustainable. I think the fact that there is a cliff edge between the Premier League and, and Championship, um, uh, I think there's a lot more the EFL can do to to better. Kind of commercialize their products and grow revenues in that division uh, and distribute those revenues within the AFL to reduce the size of that that cliff edge. Um, I think the there's there's a natural kind of um, criticism, I suppose, of, of the Premier League within the review, and um, some of it's perhaps legitimate, but I, I would also, you know, there's been a few comments from the likes of Christian Perso, Steve Parrish, and Skinner in recent weeks, which I think it may be pushed to the extreme, but but I do think there is a case of like, don't kill the, uh, the golden goose, as it were, of the Premier League, because it does, um, in terms of things like transfer revenues that already filter hugely back down to the EFL, is, is a massive source of, uh, of help for a lot of EFL clubs. Um, the investment they've put into um, uh, the academies as well has been a source of talent development for EFL clubs that's enabled them to kind of sell players to, to Premier League clubs. Um, so, and parachute payments is also a big topic of discussion parachute payments enable clubs like you know, Brentford, Watford, Norwich coming up this year to be more competitive because they have the, the kind of confidence to invest and we spoke about competitive balance earlier being a key tenet of, um, of English and European football, I think losing things like parachute payments um, means you do end up having more inequality between the, the kind of top and bottom teams so I think there's a balance to be had um, I don't think it's it's as easy as as saying redistribute, redistribute, redistribute. Because I think it's it's potentially more complex than that. Um, but that certainly there there is a place for for better cost control measures. Is there is a place for understanding how revenues can be better generated and distributed within the game. Again, though, I, I think there needs to be a lot more objective analysis as to what and predictive analysis as to if you make these changes, what,
0: what happens, um, what the uninten- potential unintended consequences are. And in terms of seeing any real change on this level, Omer, perhaps would you have an indication of the time scale required or expected? Ooh, good question. Uh, Sorry for I mean,
1: on the spot. <laughs> no, no. Well, I think I think things, yeah. I mean, uh, European football's been drifting towards a particular direction for 20, 30 years now. I think pro- particularly, I think you would say in the in the last 15 years, you've really moved towards this model of kind of greater inequality. Um, so in order to reverse that, I guess you're talking about a similar, similar time frame, although very, very difficult um, to do. Um but yeah, the the, the kind of it, the main point is that whatever changes you implement now, you probably won't be able to realise for, for quite a long period of time. And I think people have to be be patient about that in some respects and think will go wrong in, in the interim.
0: Then in terms of some of the other consultancy work you do with Omer, obviously it's outside the Premier League. You've done some work in the past with the Eredivisie regarding their, competitive, their competition model, uh, most recently the Canadian Premier League. I mean, on a different lens, looking on a different horizon, I suppose. How exciting is it to work with people such as those involved? I've read up about Oliver Gage, the technical director of the Canadian Premier League and their recruitment model. Perhaps you could not enlighten some of our listeners as to what's going on there. Yes,
1: yeah, so it's been it's been great working with the Canadian Premier League last couple of years. I mean, they've had enormous challenges being a young league, launching a year before COVID hit, and they've had to run actually two COVID seasons. So. done a remarkable job kind of getting that league off the ground and and Oli's been great um, with us so we uh, they recognize the challenge after the first year of um the CPL that you know these clubs were very small like we're talking very very small Like we used to talk about small clubs in 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 this country but you talk about clubs that have only been formed you know 12 months ago they're obviously going to be very small have very small fan bases very small revenues and so on and certainly not the resources to be able to recruit internationally so each club in the league had um, seven international spots that they needed to fill, and given you know, their ability to recruit, recruit internationally depended on the network and contacts they had, it just wasn't there at most of these clubs. Um, so we were brought in to support that process again. What I was talking about earlier in terms of recruitment is to provide scale. Um, you know, the, the the clubs are only going to have so many contacts in, in relevant networks, whereas the data can at least point you to. Peru or the Balkans or Scandinavia or wherever it is that might have players that are interested and and capable of playing um, in the CPL. Uh, And so we helped on on kind of widening that net, but also helping evaluate players coming into it because one of the big challenges for for a league like the CPL is understanding the level of other leagues that players might be coming from. So if a player is playing in the third division in, in Brazil, how does that compare to the CPL? Um, is someone playing in that league better? Uh, you know, is someone is the average player in that league better than someone in the CPL? Are they worse than someone in the CPL? That's where some of our models kind of came in and helped evaluate on some of that. And some of the success stories, particularly this season, have, have come from from that program that we've been involved in. So um, it's been it's been enormously interesting. Um, it's it's hopefully helped propel the league forward. You know, in the long term, hopefully some of these players are kind of growing in value and and could be another revenue source for the leagues as they as they sell players on. Um, but it's yeah they, they've been they've been great and they've been kind of super innovative I think thinking about um, the way that they need to differentiate themselves in you know there's probably 200, 200 odd you know first divisions out there in the world that were all kind of competing for talent so how, how
0: do, you know, how do they how do they think differently about it and I think that's, that's certainly a mantra they've taken forward and in terms of affecting broader organizational change do you think perhaps some of the large scale clients let's call them which you work for could learn from projects such as the cpl yeah i think
1: when you're a big business innovation can be harder i think you've obviously got more people more inputs and decisions you've got um often kind of legacy infrastructure that that can be a bit of an oil tanker to turn and um you know i i think more and more um big sports organizations are thinking about breaking off you know innovation hubs and, and kind of innovation sections of their their organization in order to, to kind of get ahead of um the trend as it were um, and so taking that kind of upstart mentality that uh, cpl had i think is, is something that um it's only easier said than done but i think it's something that can be done um, in these organizations because it's you know having that bit of an alternative way of thinking about problems is um, is important to, ultimately we're in sport we're in competitive industry in, in many ways so your yeah, competitive edge is a big part of it and, and
0: doing what everyone else is doing is, is not always the best way to go if you're on smaller budgets and finally before we close Omer, if we're going to bring back matters to on the pitch where everything really matters with two football fans here yourself and me what is the 21st group supercomputer looking like in terms of favourites for the Premier League and the Champions League coming into the Christmas break?
1: Yeah, so our models still very much fans, if models can be fans of anything, but very much fans of Man City. Um, they are just the quality of, of depth that they've got. They've got, um, you know, we, we was doing a piece of analysis, looking at a piece of analysis recently around, you know, the number of players they've got in the top 250, 500 players in the world. And it, it's just kind of Easily the most dominant club in that respect, Man City, and, and the quality they've got in depth means that in both our um, Premier League and Champions League, Moles are the favourites. But Bayern Munich as well are rated in the Champions League is, is very similar to uh, to Man City, followed by um, by Liverpool. Um, so I think we've got City something like fifty percent to win the league, which um, still pretty competitive. Um, but but it's you know uh, I think Liverpool in the region of kind of thirty and. and Chelsea in the region of twenty percent or so. So, yeah, it'll be it'll be tough to see past City. Um, yeah, they, they've uh, they've obviously kind of under Pep been a real force, and I think probably underrated in the sense that yes, they've spent a lot of money, but to have this kind of level of quality in, in the team um, is is a real reflection on the efficiency of their processes as well. And in terms of Champions League, that shows up too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Champions League is a massive lottery, so. Um, I think I can't remember again. I think off the top of my head, but I suspect the odds of the favourites is something like one in four, is around twenty-five percent, which obviously means seventy-five percent of the time that that they're not going to win it. Um, That's just the nature of of knockout football, Um, but it's still a very healthy position to be in. And I'm sure, as long as as Pep stays there, I'm sure City in the next um, uh, next kind of three or four years would, would kind of take away the Champions League eventually
0: obviously with all that being said now, Omar, you've carved out a very niche path for yourself in the industry. Um, Since we became acquainted with one another in July, 2020, you've been very cordial, very nice with myself, always responding to my blogs and whatnot. But um, just to close, I suppose if there was one or two bits of advice you could provide to anyone who's wishing to undergo a similar footballing journey to yourself, what would they be?
1: Yeah, I think that the main thing is, is put yourself out there. Like it's, sport is a hugely competitive industry Like everyone wants to work in it. And I you know, consider myself lucky every day to be working in it. Um, so, you know, having, having a CV saying you love sport, saying you're passionate about sport, you know, and, and sending an email, you know, to be frank, isn't, isn't really enough. You, you need to be able to demonstrate um, that you are different, that you think differently, that you have different skills, different skills. And, um, you know, a way of doing that is a podcast, a blog, a social media account, a vlog, whatever it is, um, is a way of doing that, and if it's good enough, people will notice. It's it's somewhat meritocratic, certainly more uh, meritocratic than kind of looking through through CVs. So yeah, try and put yourself out there. Um, you know, hopefully, if you've got if you have got the passion for it, it will, it'll kind of come through and and give you the kind of impetus to spend your time on it as well. Um, so yeah, that 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 was what worked for me, um, and I'm sure
0: and I know it has worked for others. So hopefully, it's a useful bit of advice. Omar Chaudhry, it's been absolutely wonderful to hear from you. Thankfully, all the stars aligned this time. We finally got you on. Um, Look, if there's any developments this season with the Super League, we'll have to get you on for round two. Nice one. Thanks, Connor.